Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. As regular listeners will know, the Society for Range Management's 2021 annual meeting was held entirely virtually for the first time in February of this year. One of the plenary panel discussions, which I helped to plan and coordinate, was titled Inside and Outside the Ranch Gate, How Do We Conserve Ranches and Support Stewardship? That session included Lynn Hunsinger from University of California, Davis, as the moderator, along with Carter Cruz, a scientist with Turner Enterprises, and Sasha Ganey with the Nature Conservancy's Sustainable Grazing Lands Program. In the interest of running a string of episodes on rangelands and soil carbon, we are reproducing much of this plenary session on the podcast. This reproduction of the recording, though, omits Carter's comments since he experienced significant technical difficulty and much of his content was also covered in a later interview, episode number 64, on conservation ranching at Turner Enterprises. I'm going to read the description of the session as I think it will help frame Lens and Sasha's presentations as well as the subsequent live Q&A with the audience. I would note that the general instructions for plenary sessions were to identify wicked challenges. In other words, seemingly intractable problems in rangeland ecology and management, which don't have simplistic answers. Uh, Here is how we describe this session. Ranching and livestock production on rangelands provide food and fiber concurrently with other ecosystem services such as wildlife habitat, clean air and water, carbon sequestration, cultural resources, recreational opportunities, and scenic vistas. However, an implicit wicked challenge is the lack of mechanisms to effectively value these ecological services to reward ranchers and landowners for their conservation. A desire to conserve rangelands and enhance ecological values has brought together individuals of otherwise disparate views. Using whole landscapes to provide ecosystem services and economic viability has turned a number of charismatic environmentalists into ranching advocates and ranchers into conservation activists. This union of perspectives has the potential to accomplish significant environmental and social good with a role for small family ranches, corporate ranches, conservation organizations, and public land agencies. The first speaker in this session was Carter Cruz, and as I mentioned, we've covered uh, most of what he had to say in episode 64. Uh, Then Lynn Hunsinger provided some, some comments, followed by Sasha with the Nature Conservancy. Uh, She joined the Nature Conservancy in 2008, initially as a scientist for the California chapter, and then more currently uh, working with the national organization in an interdisciplinary team of science, conservation, policy, and communication experts in what they've called the North America Sustainable Grazing Land Strategy. Take a listen to what they have to say.
name is Lynn Hansinger, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the first plenary session of the 74th Annual Meeting of the Society for Range Management, New Frontiers, uh, in Boise, Idaho. And I've noticed today that Boise looks a lot like my home in California. But seriously, I really am grateful for this remote technology that allows so much of us to be here so many of us to be here and hear so many of the amazing talks and events that's associated with this meeting. We can't be together in person, but it's a great way to hear what people have to say and to talk to people. So I'm really pleased that you're here to stay today. Our topic is inside and outside the ranch gate. How do we conserve ranches and support stewardship? And it's related to things that have been happening in the last couple decades of ranchers and conservationists work together, working together to conserve ranch lands for the preservation of all kinds of environmental benefits and social benefits. Um, I uh, will start now with an introduction, but basically the way that this is going to happen is we have two panelists today. Uh, I'm going to give introduction to sort of set the stage and then I also will speak and then we're counting on you to ask the questions that will make the question and answer period uh, the wonderful event that it can be. And that will follow the two, two panelists today. Okay, I'm going to start my slides. I think we're all a little worried about the technology and whether we can make it work, but I think we will be able to. Okay, so as I mentioned, our theme is inside and outside the ranch gate. How do we conserve ranches and support stewardship in the West today? To help us with this, we have an insider of the gate and an outsider of the gate, although both do both, I suppose. Our first speaker will be Carter Cruz, the Director of Conservation and Science for the Turner Enterprises or Turner Ranches, and Sasha Jeanette, the Director of North American Sustainable Grazing Land Strategy for the Nature Company. And then there's me, Lynn Hunsinger, the moderator. So my goal is to set the stage just a little bit today. And I'm going to start, I don't know if these things are in the way, I'll put them over here. I'm going to start by talking about ecosystem services and sociological services, social ecological services from rangelands. And these are basically the environmental benefits from ranchlands that drive us to conserve ranchlands and for, for members of the com conservation community to want very much to work with the ranching community because ranchers are large, extensive areas of habitat and environment. Uh, often on better land than public land, for example, uh, great conservation benefits from them. But there's also social ecological benefits. So first, uh, I, I point out two different aspects. One is land and ecosystem conservation, the benefits that come from the ecosystems on ranch lands, like watershed, um, scenic beauty, uh, wildlife habitat. There's actually a million different benefits, spiritual values, goes on and on. Um, and then there's the other part, land and ecosystem stewardship. You don't find that valued enough in ecosystem valuations. That's the process of management. And land, if you're me, you believe it needs to be cared for. What was the changes in the climate? 
with uh, invasive species, with our fire habitat. Our ecosystems have been stewarded for thousands of years uh, by Native Americans and then by ranchers, and they continue to need that stewardship, in my opinion, to maintain the wildlife habitat and many of the ecosystem services that they provide. So ranchers themselves, it's important to remember, they appreciate the ecosystem services from ranches too. And in fact, they invest in them. And I'd like to say these are data. They're not everybody, they're averages. So keep that in mind that there's a tremendous diversity in ranches and what they do. Maybe we'll get a little bit of a flavor for that today. Pope 1985 pointed out that the average agricultural use value of Texas ranches was less than a quarter of the market value of the land. Torrell et al. Did a, number, did a number of papers on these types of questions and pointed out that ranch location, the view, the desirable lifestyle, influence ranch value more than production income does. And as early as 1972, Smith and Martin in Arizona wrote that ranchers are not profit maximizers. Ranches are consumption units, a lifestyle investment, a lifestyle choice. And in my own work in 2004, we surveyed ranchers in California, and we found that most of them, 86% of them said that being in natural beauty, working in the natural environment was a really important reason for them to own a ranch and work at ranching. And we also found over time, because we did the survey several times, that amenities and amenity values are becoming more and more of a factor for ranches of all sizes, including the largest sizes. Now, there have been attempts to value ecosystem services. I've worked on one. There's no way you can value them all, right? And as I've mentioned, social ecological services get kind of short shrift in these valuations. But just looking at the measurable values that there's data on, Van Butzik and Hunsinger found that three, from 307,000 acres of California rangeland trust easements on ranches, as much as $1.44 billion in ecosystem services annually were produced, or for every $167 invested in these easements, uh, for every dollar invested in these easements, $167 is returned. That's incredible. The Trust for Public Land looked at 1.5 million Colorado acres of Colorado conservation easements and found that 5.5 to $13.7 billion in economic benefits were produced annually from ecosystem service values, or about six to seven dollars returned per dollar investment. That's a lot for an investment. You don't find that very often. The West Hill Foundation for Nature summarized all the literature on ecosystem values and found from ecosystem rangelands and for grasslands and rangelands in general. And like all these things, this is a huge generalization. They found the values were close to $600 per acre per year. And yet just doing a brief perusal uh, the other day on the web, I found that ranches typically return less than $10 per acre from livestock production. Now that is not all ranches. Like I said, it's just a common estimate. And ranch incomes, if we haven't made this point, I'll make it again, are small relative to their value. In the series of California studies that I did, uh, in 1985, 27% of ranchers got most of their income from ranching. By 2004, that was down to 14%. 
Gettner and Tanaka looking at permittees in the West, different group of ranchers from the previous, about half of Western public land ranchers depended on ranch income, income directly from the ranch for no more than 20% of their disposable income, what they went home with. And land appreciation can be seen as an important return on the investment that ranchers are making in this land, but land has to be sold to get that capital out. And that doesn't strike me as a sustainable way to conserve ranches. So um, there's a question here, what's going to happen in the future and what can we do about it? So, oops, well, Here's our big question, sorry. What can we do to make ranch production of ecosystem services sustainable for the long-term? That's the question we're gonna start out with here in our plenary question and answer session. All right, and now uh, without further ado, I want to change over to Sasha. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Carter. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. Um, I really appreciate being part of the panel and um, I'm just really grateful to SRM for pulling this together. Virtual is not ideal, but it's it's great that we're still all trying to convene. Um, so my first couple slides are going to focus on the values that I think we as rangeland management community and, and professionals see in these lands and um, and natural communities. And I think um, that really builds on obviously what Carter was presenting. Um, I'll briefly describe how the Nature Conservancy has approached rangeland conservation and strategy over the years because it's really evolved a lot. Again, a lot like at Turner. Um, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot to how I think the public is seeing beef production, rangelands, and how that differs a little bit from the way that we that we may see it. You know, those of us kind of in the the range profession. Um, and then the last part of my talk, I am gonna try to go through the different kind of revenue streams. Um, and uh, how ecosystem services and, and also corporate sustainability programs are evolving. And then how with how from the range community, how we can contribute and engage in some of those um, processes and markets and, and why we should. So next. There we go. So I think this slide to me just really encapsulates the, the way that I think a lot of us who participate in SRM see these lands. And the, um, you know, I've been coming to SRM for 15 or 20 years, and I, and I feel like we are all in pretty clear agreement that working lands and communities are important for food, for fiber, they're provisioning water, the climate solutions piece of it, which is, which is hugely important, increasingly important. Um, but also, of course, all of the different nature values and, and protecting also, you know, biodiversity and wildlife and also the, the way of life, right? So this is what Lynn, you were referring to early on about just wanting to be on the land and be, be part of a natural landscape as your as part of your career. Um, and there's a lot of data points out there, of course, that support this perspective on the, the value of grazing lands and ranching. Um, what we have essentially on these working lands, which is about 40% total of all the land in the US, um, that's about the same globally, about 40% of, of um, land is either range or pasture. Um, what we have is 93 million head of cattle, plus also bison and another livestock that turn forage into food for people while protecting soil carbon, stemming the tide of development, like we were referring to before, um, supporting wildlife, native plant communities, and supporting over 700,000, um, in this case, just beef operations. That, that doesn't include 
um, beyond the uh, cattle cattle production system, bison as well. These lands have tons of challenges that they're facing. Um, perhaps most obvious that is is the price of land outpacing the productive value of, of, of cattle operations. Lynn referred to that at the beginning of her talk, um, and also increasingly erratic forage yields and um, climatic events that are are increasing over time. So what we're all looking to do, I think, is build um, more solutions that support good stewardship and protect these lands for all of these benefits that they provide for, for people and for nature. So this is um, this is just a, a, a map that shows the lands that TNC currently owns that are um, rangelands. Each of them is managed differently with a specific set of species goals and community engagement. And so there isn't one there isn't a, an, an overarching program that manages each of these, but we do try very hard to coordinate among them and, and certainly also learn from what all of our stewardship teams are doing on the ground in order to continue to inform our strategies and engagement on policy and, and, and other um, opportunities. So I'm just going to walk through kind of the ways that the Nature Conservancy is involved in conservation and rangelands. Um, it all really began as a land trust. Um, people would pick up the phone and call us and say, I have, I'm aware of this piece of land. Our community really values it. How can we, how can we protect it? Um, that includes over the last 20, 30 plus years also, um, a lot of conservation easements. And this map doesn't show conservation easements. Um, but I would note that most of our, most of the land that we own and, and also the, the easements, um, well, actually, sorry, just mostly the lands that we own do have, um, grazing operations and really active rangeland management on them. And most of them have um, cattle leases. Um, we do also have bison herds. There are about 13, 13 separate herds across the Nature Conservancy. And um, that is also, uh, you know, and we're engaged with the wind caves and the genetic um, management, working with also Native American tribes to, um, to expand and start new herds. Um, and also engaged in the Bison Management Association. So it's a it's a money-making venture as well as a really important part of the conservation story on, on a lot of these lands. Um, so I'll just real quick run through. We also have a really strong um, engagement on science on these lands, like similar to the way that Carter was describing, you know, how how do we manage towards these the these important biodiversity goals, water, and other other important values that are are clear um uh, problems and, and solutions that the, the community surrounding these lands uh, is engaged in. Um, based on what we learn on these lands, we also often become really involved more on the policy side. So that's both at the state and federal level, um, includes engagement with public lands agencies, but also on things like Farm Bill, where you have funding that will flow to um, cost share programs, technical assistance, et cetera. Those are all really important ways that we can contribute to um, supporting rangelands and conservation. Um, I think a lot of you encounter TNC in our community-based um, conservation programs. A lot of that is just intersects with the land that we own, um, but it's an important part of how we learn um, learn from our neighbors and also share what we're learning um, on on these lands. Very systematic kind of a planning approach is something that TNC is, I think, fairly um, well well known for. Um, maybe sometimes to a fault, but it's a really important. You know, Carter referred to the idea of planning and goal orientation and how do we how do we get someplace and learning and adaptive management both at that that overall strategy level but also on the ground uh, on the ground um, in terms of did something work did it not work and how do we how do we do better over time um, but all of these things are seem to still be not quite enough for 
the pace and scale of conversion and threats to these landscapes. So we have increasingly worked on innovative finance and also really bringing a lot of energy into our, our work with companies on corporate engagement. So that's something that I can mention again um, in a little while. So again, this is the way I think we see things in um, both at the Nature Conservancy and kind of broadly in the SRM world is, you know, we manage land to support all of these different values and it's a you know positive feedback loop. And yet I think there is a huge contingent in the public that it, I, I would say increasingly does not see these lands and what we do in this way exactly. Um, and part of that I think really stems from the way that um, we have communicated around um, science and the kind of information around kind of footprint of different kinds of um, agricultural products and production. So this this graph is this is the way that I think many, many, many members of the public now see beef production. It's what is the what is the the acreage that it that it takes up, which I think, as we all know, the acreage that it takes up, that's the working the working wildlands. That's the natural part of these, you know, these ecosystems. But it's not really seen that way, I think, in a lot of um, a lot of the way that this is communicated. Um, obviously, enteric methane that is emitted from ruminant digestion is also um, a, a serious issue that is um, increasingly a concern for the public. And, um, you know, there there is quite a lot of of action in that space around understanding the 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 ways that climate, the, the ways that greenhouse gases, especially methane, actually cycle in ecosystems. We won't get into that in this talk, but I would just point out that it's a super complex space that's evolving really quickly around, you know, GHG's emissions. How do you account for them? How do you set goals against them? Um, and we can maybe get to it in the, in the discussion if, if folks want to. Um, and I'll just jump through this real quickly, but Carter touched on the, um, grain finishing, grass finishing piece. I think a lot of folks in the bit, like a lot of, a lot of the public now and consumers really see feedlots as a, as a kind of this factory farming issue. And it's, um, it's really not a, it's not a part of the system that I think people see as part of this larger production cycle around, you know, most of the time animals are on working wildlands. And then in the last few months of their lives, they, they, you know, grain finish. There's another conundrum here, which I think is really important related to climate, which is that grain finishing does, you know, you get your animals to slaughter weight faster and therefore they have a, a lifespan over the course of their, you know, if you measure it on a per pound basis, generally a lower GHG emissions just because that they don't, they don't live longer. You know, the grass finished animals tend to live longer and therefore they have more methane that they emit over the course of their lifespans. And that's a real conundrum. Um, and I think it's also something that the conventional beef industry um, sees grain finishing as a real, um, because it's so efficient, sees it as a real benefit. And so I think this is something that is just an important, really important space for us to be aware of and lean into for solutions. So again, I think the public doesn't see always what we see. Um, people see, I think, cattle as a problem. Um, they see it as a, as, a, as a path to destroying the planet. And I think um, increasingly a lot of focus, even from um, a number of environmental organizations and scientists around eating less meat as a solution. And what I would I would like to also you know speak to and I, and Carter was describing as well is leaning into the idea that we can we can <laughs> we can support good stewardship through our through our choices and through our strategies. It's not just about eating less. It's about how do we encourage how do we 
protect these lands and do you know support support good stewardship through the marketplace. Um, so from here, this is just a scare slide, basically. So this is investment in new proteins. This is the alt protein space, and these are just some of the companies that are getting money to um, to create alternative meats. Now, is you know, if to me, if this doesn't kind of um, make you nervous for how do we support rangelands, then then I'm not I'm not sure what does. I think there's a really clear path forward, but I think like Carter was saying, the story of how we raise animals. The story of, of how we manage lands and rangelands and the importance of them is, is increasingly important because I think there's starting to be, you know, sort of less of an understanding about where food comes from and the importance of, um, rangelands and stewardship for, for nature. So just real, um, I'm going to try to run through this really quickly, but different kinds of revenue and financial support. It's not just about carbon markets. Um, Sales and revenue are obviously the biggest, and um, I'll go through each of these in a little bit more detail. There's also the, the sort of policy-enabled forms of revenue and financial support, and then directly in terms of working with banks and insurance, um, other parts of the financial services industry, to a, a whole suite of different options. So in terms of sales and revenue, and um, Carter actually captured a lot of this in his, in his presentation as well. Um, even though many producers no longer make a majority of their income from beef sales, it's still a place where increased revenue is possible through management and markets. So price premiums, um, more stable contracts and contract terms, other kinds of preferential um, contract um, items. Um, and on the certification piece, I just want to note that um, there is, for, for all kinds of certifications, there's a certain amount of MRV, the monitoring, reporting, and verification um, aspects of it, which can require a lot of time and energy. So I think as you enter into certification programs, it's really important to pencil out that investment. Um, so uh, there's also some really great examples out there of aggregated markets. So um, producers who work together in a co-op approach to, to, sell, to, to sell their product. And I think there's a lot of room still for more of that to, to happen. So I'd really encourage um, the producers um, out there and and uh, and those who you work with to consider how to maybe work together in a more cooperative way around um, sales and marketing. Um, enterprises, uh, Carter spoke to this beautifully, of course, recreation, tourism, and the kind of access um, access to nature kind of values. That's a huge, you know, everything from hunting to weddings is is part of the equation here. And then ecosystem markets, which I'll talk about in a little bit more detail in a second. Uh, it's mostly about carbon, soil carbon, and water. And again, it requires a, a, a fairly high degree of um, MRV investment if you're really going to do a, a rigorous program. I think of policy-enabled forms of revenue and financial support as including conservation easements, including tax reductions. So when agricultural land is, is taxed differently, cost-share programs through NRCS and, and others, um, uh, more uh, public insurance programs, and also even public lands permits. Um, so this is this is a big space. And I think it's really important to recognize that the um, public support and recognition of the values of rangelands is crucial for these programs to continue. So understanding and quantifying what those values are keeps these programs alive, I think, in, in, in large part. Um, again, all these projects, not all, but a lot of them do involve a certain amount of um, monitoring and verification. So this is, this is always going to be part of how do we communicate about, how do we monitor what we're doing so that we can get um, get the value that we need to stewardship and land protection? Last piece here um, is different kinds of financial services. This is 
everything from loan terms to uh, private insurance. And all of this, again, requires public recognition and also the sort of tech technologies and, and monitoring um, uh, approaches that and, and tools that will enable us to communicate as quickly as possible and as consistently as possible about the values of stewardship practices and outcomes. So this is just real quick. Um, when you enter into an ecosystem services project or program, you typically have to go through this, this project cycle. So I only put this up as a, as a note that it's important to, to kind of be really aware of this at the outset so you know that your program is really going to pencil out and that the level of effort is worth it. Um, carbon tons per acre, price per ton, price per ton has valid, varied a lot over the last uh, few years between 10 and $30 per ton. Um, and I think as the markets become more regulated and there's more legislation in place around this, those, those prices may go up and they may also stabilize. So, um, existing markets. So this is the climate action reserve has a, a grassland protocol. This is really to avoid conversion. Um, let me make sure I just get all these right here. Um, so this is a verified standard, again, for avoided conversion, meaning that you can sell the value of your existing carbon stocks in the context of a land deal. So this can provide, for example, some funding for conservation easement. And the Nature Conservancy has, has been able to do this for several easements in um, Montana and Oregon, I think other places as well. Another form of market, and this isn't maybe exactly what we were thinking of when you hear ecosystem service market, but I think this is a really, really important one as well. This is more of a pay for practices approach. Um, this is the example is the Healthy Soils Program in California. And essentially what that does is it takes money from the cap and trade climate bill in, in California, the, the marketplace there, and takes the, the, the money that comes into that um, fund and reinvest it in land-based practices. So um, farmers and ranchers can get paid to do stewardship practices. Um, it has a slightly lower amount of verification and reporting, um, but it is, it is, you know, it, it has a little bit more of a similarity to more of a cost share type of an approach. There is also an emerging market called the Ecosystem Services Market Consortium that I think is super exciting um, for rangelands and farmlands. Uh, this is they're in the process of developing standards and mechanisms to pay for outcomes on agricultural land management um, and hopefully we'll go live in the next year or so they're right now in, in um, piloting the the standards developing standards and then piloting the actual on the ground projects so this is where you would identify a suite of practices and then actually measure the outcomes and sell those um, sell those carbon credits or water credits and hopefully also biodiversity credits with the goal of you know, ESMC being able to stack credits as well um, for different kinds of stewardship practices and outcomes. So this is a pretty exciting space. And I think one where um, climate legislation, if it if that comes, um, could could speed things up significantly. Um, I mean, I'm almost at the end of my talk, but I just wanted to mention, too, because I think this is a really active space that we should be just aware of and, and hopefully engaged in is around corporate sustainability commitments. And um, there are over 600 food and agricultural companies that have made quantitative commitments to uh, to climate and other aspects of sustainability in the last few years through a, a program called the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Um, and then a number of other uh, companies that are making commitments. Um, and this is not just to reducing you know, electricity in their plants and buildings, but this is what's called scope three targets. That's the indirect sources of, of GHG emissions and water use throughout the supply chain. So that includes purchased goods and services all the way up to you know, it would, be, it would be all the way to 
you know, uh, row crops and, um, and, and to uh, the grazing phase of the beef supply chain here. And this is a really important potential space, I think, because cattle production, bison, and, you know, the grazing phase of the, um, of, um, and, and livestock really is where a lot of the benefits um, could accrue. So again, I think, you know, super active space here and one that we all want to keep track of from the, the range community. Um, the big com- big question right now, the big questions that are being worked out are really how is this going to work? Who's going to, who's, who pays, who benefits? What are the standards? And there's, um, there's a tremendous amount of um, activity right now. You hear you know, Nori and Truterra and um, Indigo Ag, and these are all companies that are really trying to create a, a viable, a viable set of standards and approaches. Um, and again, I think just really being clear about what are the, what are the, if you do choose to, to try to engage in, a, in you know, these kinds of programs, what is the value? Does it pencil out for you? How confident are you um, in, you know, in, in what you can achieve there? So I think it's really important for um, range professionals to stay engaged in this space so that the opportunities are realized for producers and for stewardship and also to ensure that the verification programs are adequately robust and science-based without being so onerous that they will never pencil out. So I think that's a really important space potentially for SRM. So the three big things that I think are going to be important for, um, for folks from this community to stay involved in, transparency and, and data sharing. So can we help develop a way to communicate about what is happening on the land? How is it managed? What kinds of practices and what are the benefits? So this could be certification programs or standard setting. Um, I think good conservation plans like Carter referred to and Jasmine was asking about. And that kind of adaptive management framework is really the foundation for for all of this. Um, It may even be valuable to have traceability programs um, developing. I think it's those are tends to be controversial, but I think given in a voluntary context with appropriate privacy in place, Transparent traceability programs could be really transformative um, for a lot of aspects of ecosystem services markets. Um, Again, being engaged in the uh, developing of standards and the the tools and verification protocols. There's a lot of there are a lot of tools out there that are fantastic. And I think more that are coming. It's everything from Comet, Comet Planner to the Rangeland Assessment Platform, Pasture Map, Maya, their Corteva products. So there's both sort of public and private companies or public tools and also private companies that are investing in this space. So that's a really exciting area. Um, and then also this, this idea of kind of who pays and who benefits. Uh, I think a lot of this activity is happening right near, now in voluntary market settings. Um, increasingly, I think there will probably be more regulated markets. And um, so again, I just want to encourage the you know, SRM community just to be keeping an eye out and be engaged whenever you can in, in these kinds of pilots and programs. So what if we don't? <laughs> I think this is just a, a cautionary tale. This is the very last slide I have. But um, what happens if scientists and land managers aren't involved really deeply in, in setting these systems up? Um, we were approached by a really progressive restaurateur a couple of years ago to, to launch a sustainability transparency project, which is fantastic. Um, and of course, having a celebrity chef um, talk directly to a big audience of, of consumers is, is really appealing. and um, but in the end, the only piece of information that they wanted to present to consumers and customers was the percentage of soil carbon in the ground on the farms and ranches where they were purchasing their um, their meat. 
And I think that that was, it was, it was hard for us to, 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 um, to say, Hey, that's just not workable. But in the end, that is not nuanced enough. It's not enough to capture the many benefits of stewardship. Um, it's not even necessarily related to current management. You know, soil carbon obviously changes, changes slowly in many places. It can go down over time based on, you know, climate and drought, et cetera. Um, so this is just my call to action to SRM community to really engage in describing the importance, you know, increasingly, um, really actively to the public around the importance of these lands and good stewardship and finding ways to build really solid quantitative tools, uh, policies and programs, and just to stay engaged in the emerging markets. So that's all I had and um, just look forward to some, some discussion with the audience. Hi, um, we've accumulated a number of questions and uh, Sasha, I'm going to turn the first one over to you. Um, and of course, it's about methane and we had discussed uh, methane and carbon emissions earlier and we've agreed that we are not the Earth's expert on this, and you may want to go to the climate session, the climate climate plenary session, to um, learn more about. Uh, I think one thing we can do, Sasha and everybody else, is complexify the issue, because there's a lot uh, to be complex about in terms of methane as uh, something that's been produced by all ruminants for millions of years. I Yes, well, hundreds of thousands anyway. And um, also, I just want to point out that it's a foregut fermentation process that ruminants have evolved where they can break down indigestible fiber by composting them in their foregut. And so the issue is belching. And I get very tired of the fart thing. All of us fart methane to some extent. But in terms of the problem, it's about ruminant burps. And so Sasha, the question to you is about when they did that comparison with grain-fed beef and grass-fed beef, um, did they really take into account the fossil fuels that are used in the production of the grain and the transport of the grain and all the things associated with uh, the farming allows us to produce these energy-rich feeds for livestock? That that is a good question. Whether all of those things were taken, yeah, yeah, that's a good question, and I do think it. I think that it would be pretty important to look at those details. I I don't do life cycle analysis um, in great detail, but my understanding is yes that those boundaries were drawn to include um, include that those inputs. So if others have have additional information or resources. I think we just really want to understand this as clearly as possible so that the, the solutions are, we develop the solutions correctly and, and um, don't get tangled in, um, you know, what, which, which one's right and which one's not. I think the, the benefits of grass feeding um, are clear. And, and yet there's also this efficiency, nutrition efficiency piece in um, feed yards that is also very real. Thank you. I, I now, um, it's really good to look at all of these studies carefully, what they're measuring, what they're not measuring, and uh, whether it's pounds per acre or amount per acre or amount per pound or all those different things. It's a, a worthwhile to really look at that. 
Um, and Sasha, I'm going to ask you a question and then I'll ask uh, Carter the same question. And that is, you talked about how people see auction, the general public. There are obviously some people who feel differently, uh, but that see the problems with livestock production. And when they are confronted with things like these methane emissions uh, or carbon emissions charts um, or land area used or water used, um, it's, it's concerning to them. How can we change that narrative? Do you have thoughts about how we might change that narrative? Especially since these things are all used by the alternative meat industry to support the alternative meat means. Yeah, I think that that often when there is a direct connection from where where you're, you know, when you when you buy your when you buy your meat or your food or whatever it is, if you can if you can find a way to even find out where where it has come from, that tells the story itself. I think we have. Um, we have very, very little transparency in the beef supply chain. I think you get, I mean, you produce in, in the grazing phase, your animals, they go to the auction yard. Almost no information goes with them to the auction yard. And anything that did go probably doesn't end up in the feed yard. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't carry on through the, through the supply chain. It's just a very, very separated, you know, each phase of production. So I think I do think that um, that carrying that information forward in in and of itself could be super valuable. So that how was it raised? Maybe it's through a certification program, or maybe it's through a, um, other kinds of documentation. But even being able to, I think, tell that story of you know in your in your supply chains to whether it's you know at a grocery store or if you're buying direct. Um, seems to make a huge difference. I think when people when people are able to access just where where it's from and who raised it, and just a little bit of information about how it was raised. And Carter, um, you're going to have to unmute yourself, but it seems to me that one of your goals is to transmit a better message or a message to consumers about how your product is produced. Yes, I, I would agree with that statement. I think, you know, to, to, to the genesis of your question, I wonder if the story um, isn't connected or told regarding the, you know, the, the importance of grazing animals and, and how rangeland ecosystems evolved under grazing pressure is part of the, you know, part of the story that doesn't get to the consumer and, and how those you know, how those animals, whether it's a bison or a cow are an integral, well, if well managed are an integral part of that ecosystem that's providing these services that, you know, we all, we all depend on. And I can't turn. And I've certainly seen a lot of Mark. No, you're fine. I just can't turn my video on. If, I don't know if that's important or not, but. Uh, we can hear you very well. Okay, good. And it does conserve bandwidth to some extent. Um, so let's move on a little bit to, to stewardship. Um, Sasha, how do you encourage or support the actual stewardship or management of ranchers on conserved ranch lands? How do we support that? It's one thing to just set aside the land 
and say, oh, now it's permanently protected. But so much of the value is tied up in how it's managed. How does the Nature Conservancy work with that? You mean on the easements and owned lands that we are? Any any ranches that you work with that you seek to cease? Yeah, I, yeah it's, a, it's a good question. I, um, it really, it, it varies a lot depending um, again, on kind of what the local issues and concerns are, are the, on our conservation easements, there's, there's always a, a, the easement will have some information about it, about how, you know, if there are restrictions or, um, on the way that that land is managed. But in a more broad sense, obviously we work with our lessees on, um, goal, you know, planning and goals and, uh, and management, management issues. And then that whole suite of really of strategies that, that I described are, it's kind of a stacked way that we try to support producers and support, um, stewardship through if there's a policy hurdle, we can identify it and, and come up with a better enabling policy, whether it's farm bill or, um, you know, at any, any of the kind of either legislative or policy approaches, we'll, we'll focus on that if it's going to be beneficial. Um, so it's really a full range of approaches and, you know, it could be even certification program and working with banks to develop, you know, better loan terms, that sort of thing. So it's, again, it's kind of that full suite of um, strategies and tactics. Um, Carter, I have some basic management questions for you. And one of them is, uh, do your cattle or your, do your bison graze right in the pastures with cutthroat trout? I presume the trout are in the water, but in pastures with cutthroat trout, do you graze uh, bison or do you, how do you manage around the fish or do you need to? Oh, they, they are, you know, they're, they're grazing right in those, those systems where we've done the restoration. And that's, you know, in general, that's a pretty important component for us in considering conservation projects and stuff. You know, our mission has some inherent tension in it, you know, economic productivity versus environmental conservation, but but we embrace that. And, you know, there are occasions where we set certain areas aside for conservation, but, but by and large, it's important for us to have those two working together and pick projects that will will work together. So, but but the direct answer to that question is no, yep, the bison, bison are right in there with the fish. Lynn, okay. I've seen a bunch um, of questions. Oh. If you'd like to pick one out, go right ahead. Well, I was seeing some follow-up on the, the GHG's issues, and so I, I wonder if it's worth taking a minute to kind of dig into that just a little bit more. Um, sure. Methane in particular. So I think that the big, in the, over the last, you know, few decades, the way that, um, the way that climate metrics, climate change metrics have been, used through both in kind of the IPCC world um, and also in the corporate engagement world has it has it has sort of lumped together the all of the different kinds of greenhouse gases in ways that um, don't fully account for short and long term um, the, 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 the different lifespans of those greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And in beef, that's really important because the primary greenhouse gas that's, that's emitted is methane, which is a potent but short-lived pollutant. And it is also part of a biogenic methane cycle so that as the 
you know, as methane disappears, it goes back into the ground and it, you know, kind of goes through. So if, if the cattle, if, if the rumen, number of ruminants and, um, in the world is flat, then the amount of methane doesn't go up or down necessarily, you know, in any given year. And that means that the, the impact on climate is also flat. So if you, if you grow the herd overall and grow the amount of methane that's coming out of the ruminant and livestock system, that actually has a really significant impact on near-term climate warming on, on uh, global warming. But if you're reducing the herd size or reducing the, the overall methane emissions through things like efficiency or different kinds of practices, um, you can quite quickly reduce the amount of methane and have a net cooling effect. So that's a, a you know a climate neutral or beneficial outcome. And that's why this issue around grain feeding and grass feeding is is important. And it and it's also really I think going to be important as we communicate about livestock because. Um, it could come across saying like, oh, we just did it. We just did the calculations wrong. Actually, cattle don't aren't a problem for climate. That could come across in a way that's really challenging, I think, for for public communication. Um, but is also very much the 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 like the physics and the, the science around this, the atmospheric chemistry is totally valid. So I think it's going to be important for us to engage in that conversation. Um, and also the difference between what methane reduction can do and what soil carbon sequestration can do, because there are different kinds of practices and different kinds of long-term or different kinds of outcomes for climate. So I just wanted to throw that in there because somebody had put a link to Frank Mitloner, some of his papers, um, and we can follow up with some summary, um, summary documents about methane afterwards. That hopefully that's helpful. And Sasha, to add to that just a little bit, um, when you're talking about the difference between the way methane behaves and carbon, the grain that is fed is grown with carbon-based fertilizers and transported by carbon-based fuels that emit carbon dioxide, which behaves differently from methane. So it's very complicated and we continue to learn more about it. Let's don't underestimate that. Um, Carter, what do you think the ranch of the future looks like 30 years from now? Are we going to see big ranches and little ranches and a mix or are, are we going, how is the landscape of ranching going to change in your view? And you guys must be thinking about it because you're a long-term enterprise. What do you think it's going to look like in 30 years and what's going to shape it the most? Well, I, I'll just answer from my own perspective, not necessarily our company's perspective, but I certainly think, uh, you know, drought and climate are things that are at the forefront of our conversations in terms of, you know, what we can do into the future. So if you ask me if I had to think about one driver that really, that we really think about a lot, it's those. I, I hope, I hope things look similar in the future as they do today. I think there's a need for, you know, everything from the small producer to the, to the larger landscape and, and, um, but I, I do think there are going to be some, some, uh, challenges around, you know, drought and climate, uh, depending on what area folks are in. And, you know, we, we had discussions about our Southern ranches and their viability in terms of a, a ranching enterprise. Um, they're certainly valuable from, from a conservation perspective and, and that shouldn't be overlooked either, but, um, but from a ranching pre, so that's what I think drives, drives our concern. And, and then of course, uh, markets and commodities and things like that, that I think every, every producer has to worry about. 
And Sasha, would you address the same question from your perspective? What do you see the future ranching landscape looking like in 30 years? And a question has been asked about small ranches versus large ranches and and all those things and how they'll persist or will they and anything that you'd like to say in this area about the future. Yeah, I appreciate that. I do think that the this increasing the recognition of the value of these lands is going to be crucial to keeping them from even more rapid conversion and um, and then the, the degradation that goes along with with that. So I think that if we if, I think if we're successful in um, in that effort, we can keep that full suite of large ranches, small ranches, you know, um, staying staying operationally whole. Um, I think bringing probably bringing you know increased focus even more to different enterprises, different kinds of values, different kinds of markets is will be important for many many producers. Um, so I, I am hopeful that in thirty years' time there will be a that, you know, kind of our shared vision, you know, SRM folks around, you know, ma- maintaining and, and protecting and, and stewarding these lands, both for, you know, what they give us and, and also so that we can, um, you know, continue to, to um, have that kind of, you know, that cycle of pos- that positive feedback loop of good stewardship and, um, you know, communities and uh, both natural communities and human communities. So I, I, I feel pretty optimistic about it. Um, but we have to stay on top of it. It seems to me that a really critical part is going to be, as you mentioned, building those markets and ways for ecosystem services to be monitored the, the ranch owner, because right now they're just not getting as much return as they might from the ecosystem services that, that ranches produce. Um, Here's a question, Carter, for you. We have one minute. <laughs> it is yeah, from a researcher with the USDA ARS, and they ask future, what science and decision support would you like to see from the ARS in adapting grazing and bison ranching in the Northern Plains? And what knowledge needs are essential for you on your ranches in the Northern Plains? Well, that's a great question, and, and I'm probably not the most equipped in our organization to answer that. But I, you know, we we are we've been in the bison business for almost 30 years now, but really haven't done a lot of, you know, as I said in my talk, a big chunk of that was 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 kind of the build out and in the growth and build out phases, and we're just now getting back around to understanding what we don't know, especially about bison. Um, we, we, we have some indications about how they use the landscape, perhaps different than other ungulates, but, um, but things like just, you know, basic nutrition needs of, of that animal, um, how they use the landscape, um, you know, what are their, what are their grazing preferences in terms of, you know, what, what they use out there. A lot of, a lot of our early forays into the, our management plans and things were based on the cattle model because we, we don't have any other information. So, um, and that's worked fairly well, but we 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 certainly found places where it 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 appears not to apply very well. So um, I think you know there's there's huge areas to to look at in terms of you know just how the animal uses the landscape, and then its physiology, its nutritional requirements. All those things are fairly un, uh, are are kind of unknown 
for that critter. So that's a pretty general answer to a to a question. But we certainly have have uh, range management folks that that could engage at a deeper level than I can. All right, let's see. Um, I had a question, uh, Sasha and Carter. Um, what is it? What are some of the things? And this relates to the ARS question. Um, what are the things that would make it easier to work with federal and state agencies? Carter, you, we heard from you about this, but Sasha, you must work with federal and state agencies too. And where does the Nature Conservancy fit in with all this public land and uh, federal and state agencies and their role? You mentioned provide markets that are good for the ranch community. Anything else? Um, you're asking about what kinds of tools would be helpful? Yeah. How much, how do you interact with federal and state agencies? And Oh, yeah. But, I mean, a variety of work. Okay. That, yeah, a variety of ways. I mean, some of our, on our own lands, we'll have, you know, permits, actual grazing permits. Um, but we also have a number of partnerships and projects that we do with, um, with a, a number of different agencies. So we, for example, we just, um, we just, uh, we're, we're just about to launch into a five state initiative in the central grasslands and the, um, central plains with NRCS to really focus in on, um, range stewardship and, um, and kind of joint, jointly work towards outcomes. Um, we have, uh, our Colorado chapter has worked really closely with, um, the land PKS team to develop uh, wildlife modules and then do grazing management planning with land PKS to um, to really move uh, to kind of move the needle on getting more people to have good plans and be able to to monitor them and have the tools in place. So there's a whole there's a whole variety of of, of different ways um, on the land permits piece, for example. So we've you know we have those and we have some sense of what some of the challenges are. And we've been able to work then in a, you know, with, with other organizations and then to, you know, to, to engage directly on the BLM and now the U.S. Forest Service um, grazing permit regulation changes. So just a, there's a sort of a smattering, but there's a, a variety of, of different ways that we stay engaged there. Great. And, and Carter? Yeah, we've, uh, we, similar to Sasha, we have various ways that we are able to engage with state and federal agencies. Um, we don't, I, I mean, I think, I think people can be intimidated by that process, but, but we don't find it all that intimidating after you have a little experience uh, into it. But, um, but I, the, to me, the biggest or the most important thing that a landowner can do to maybe find us a way into the processes and make those relationships that ultimately bear some fruit is, is you have to engage in, in, in show interest in, in those programs and partnerships will start to start to unfold. I think, um, you know, we typically reach out to the, to the, if we have a, a species or a system or something we're interested in working on, we'll, we'll reach out pretty quickly to the, to the state or federal agency or entity that's involved in managing either a habitat or a, or a system and, and try to explore the programs. And in fact, you know, you develop those relationships and show a willingness to do those things. Um, I've been amazed at how often agencies have come to us and said, Hey, you know, we, we've got some initiative or we've got some project we want to work on, or would you guys be interested in engaging with us? And to me, that's, you know, uh, 
exciting in the sense that they recognize a capacity and an ability on the part of our organization. But I don't, I don't think that's unique to us. We, we have perhaps resources that some smaller organizations wouldn't have, but, but to me, it's about, you know, expressing an interest in engaging and, and maybe even before that, moving past concerns and fears, regulatory concerns and fears that a lot of people have um, with permits and the Endangered Species Act and things like that. But, um, and I, you know, federal and state agencies have process. It's, it's, it can get intimidating and it can get frustrating and, but, but they'll, they'll work through it with you. And, and, you know, if I had some advice to those agencies, it would be to, you know, streamline some of those processes and, and make things a little less intimidating to, to private landowners, especially those that don't have a lot of resources to engage. But, um, but I, I find them very willing to engage. Well, that's great. Um, Sasha, I understand that the Biden administration has a goal of conserving 30% of America's land area. And I'm wondering what that means. Do you have any idea what that means to conserve the land area? Are they thinking about conservation easements and working ranches as part of that scenario? Do we know what that means? Because I see all the time protected areas, areas. I you know, there's a lot of different meanings for that. Yeah, so that's a good question, mm -hmm. Thanks, Lynn. Um, and I, I don't think that it's all fully figured out at all at this point with the with the new administration. Um, I would imagine there there certainly would be a um, you know to some extent some designations, mm -hmm. but I think this is a great place for SRM and ranchers to really get involved because the kind of stewardship and the, these kinds of programs that we've been talking about this whole time are a, a much, I think for, for most landowners, um, a much more desirable path to thinking about land protection, right? To invest in stewardship, to invest in the people who've been managing these lands for decades or centuries or more. Um, and so I think that that's, that's a real opportunity to, to advocate for 30 by 30 to mean something that really is about um about stewardship and about the people who who manage these lands now. So, um, so that yeah, that that's my hope, and and certainly uh, TNC will be involved in that process that is just in the process, just really starting, I think, to come together. And Carter, for those considering starting the eco to use the eco agricultural approach in managing their ranchship. Um, both because they want to steward the land that way, but also market it. What kind of surprises did you run into? If any. That's a great question. I, this is, this is really us right now. We're, we're just, we're just kind of changing our, our psyche in a way to, to, to embrace that term, I guess. Um, I would say one surprise for me was, you know, thinking that, thinking that we had been doing a pretty good job of some of these things all along and realizing that, that uh, maybe we were, we were falling short in, in several areas. So maybe that was the big benefit for our organization is just thinking about it maybe in a, in a bigger, more holistic perspective than I thought we were already doing. Um, so, and I think it's also, it's also getting out of, out of your comfort zone Um you know, for me, starting to understand, uh, I'm a I'm an aquatic ecologist and a wildlife biologist. You know, by training, and 
and trying to move into some of these other uh, areas of science. While there's lots of overlap, there's certainly lots of things to be learned. Um, so that's, you know, that's important and challenging. Um, and it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a philosophical shift in some ways, but again, I, if I had to say one big surprise, it, it was, it was maybe really sitting down and thinking through maybe my basic view that, that this really wasn't much of a shift for us and realizing that indeed it is. And it's, it's really, you know, we would, the, the folks, the biologists and things that work on the conservation programs would, you know, not that we did that in a vacuum, but we certainly didn't involve the whole cross section of the society and Turner Enterprises. You know, we didn't always involve a ranch manager in a discussion or things like that. And I, um, I think we need to do a much better job of, of having the multidisciplinary approach to looking at our, you know, all aspects of our organization and, and getting a little, and, and maybe that, that, you know, can be scaled up. That That's true at all levels to, to, to challenge ourselves to think a little differently in that regard. Okay. I just have a couple more questions. Um, Sasha, what do you think are the most, I mean, one of the consistent questions that people have been asking is how do we turn all these uh, ecosystem service hypothetical values into cash? Mm-hmm. income. And what do you think are the most promising ecosystem services markets that we'll see coming, playing a role in the yeah, next uh, decade or so? Well, I I would imagine that there, that at some point there will be um, either, either a tax and credit system or some form of cap and trade. Like I, I'm not sure at all where that's going. That is not, um, you know, that, that is, I don't think determined, but I would imagine that that is, that will, that will occur. Um, and that's a huge, that's a, that's a huge driver, obviously for, um, for carbon and on the, on the water side too, I think what we've seen, for example, I mean, you've been probably tracking in California, similarly, the, um, there's as, as the, as water resources, including groundwater are declining, um, there's more and more of a move to, um, to, to value them and then to really look at um, land use and, um, and figure out how to, um, you know, how to, how to manage sustainably over, over, over time. Some of that, some of that is regulated. Um, and I, I think this is, you know, when you think about the Endangered Species Act and it's, it can be really fantastic to get ahead of a listing um, and do that in a collaborative way. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about the candidate conservation agreements and the way that that's really been beneficial to producers to avoid listings. Um, maybe there are, maybe there are approaches like that with, um, with rangelands and, um, but yeah, I, I think that the question around kind of who, who pays and who benefits is still, is still really being worked out. And our last question for Carter. Carter, you guys have a lot of property. <laughs> and uh, there are a lot of small ranches around too. Um, and you are doing wonderful things and, and taking all these creative approaches to management and you have the resources to do that. What would you say to smaller ranchers um, looking for sustainability in the future and taking advantage of some of these markets? 
That's a great question. Um, first, I'd say that, I, you know, we have an advantage of scale, but I think a lot of the things, I hope it was at least somewhat clear that a lot of the things that, that we do are certainly can be scaled down or up or, you know, to, to whatever size to fit. So that, that would be my first comment. Um, and then, you know, I would point to, to you know, uh, and I think Sasha talked about it in her presentation a little bit, these ideas of, uh, I think she was talking about co-ops in terms of marketing abilities, but even co-ops in terms of, you know, conservation opportunities or, or those sorts of things. There's, you know, as one example I can think of, there's a great organization in the Sandhills of Nebraska called the Sandhills Task Force. And, and, you know, they're, that's not a unique organization, but it's a great example of how uh, producers around the Sandhills have grouped together to, to maximize the ability to do certain projects and things there. So that, that would be another uh, thing I would, I would encourage folks to do is find like-minded folks around you and, and try to come together. And again, make those relationships with those state and federal agencies. You'd be surprised what resources are available out there um, at big and small scale and, and don't require a lot of, you know, like for instance, cash input from a landowner, but maybe some, some, uh, some work and equipment matching or something. But um, so I, I think there's lots of opportunities out there for, for, for small, small and large, large landowners. Great. Well, um, anybody want to type in a last minute question? I imagine our speakers are getting tired at this point. Um, but if you have a last burning question, type one in. Otherwise, we will we will move on. Yeah, and, and um, Jenny just posted posted something about ranchers oh. and food companies being really engaged with ESMC and the commodity groups as well. And I, and I that is that is absolutely right. And I. I should have mentioned that earlier. There's, you know, NCBA and a lot of the other groups are um, are very engaged, um, which is fantastic. Well, we even have ranches in, in the United States sharing land. It's pretty interesting what you can do when you group together. Um, very interesting. I think a good way to end would be to give you guys each a chance if you have anything else you want to say. So Sasha and then Carter. Well, I'm, I, I think just mostly thank you for the, the chance to have the conversation and um, walk through what I see as some of the, some of the paths forward. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm very grateful to SRM because it, it is a community of folks who really adds so much to science and management and decision-making. And it's just, it's been a great home for me over um, my career with, um, with so many folks who really are just like, just amazing on the technical side and also as, as thought partners. And so just, just want to say thank you. And Carter, any last words, final words, I guess. I echo that. Certainly, certainly thank you for the opportunity um, and, and reaching out to involve Turner Enterprises in this session. And, and hopefully there was at least a few nuggets in there and, um, I certainly want to put out there for anybody that if, if there's any intrigue by anything I said or, or uh, want more information on anything, please feel free to get a hold of me or my colleagues at Turner Enterprises and uh, be happy to, to uh, either answer questions or work together or find some collaboration. Yes, yeah. there was a question about how to volunteer with Turner Enterprises. So you may find somebody taking you on that, Carter. Um, I've so enjoyed yeah. me working with both of you and uh, I'm really, we've had a, 
audience has lasted a while here. I'm really grateful to everybody who participated uh, today. So thank Thanks, you very Lynn. much. Yeah, sure. and ditto. Any, any partnerships or questions, please reach out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.